Hello, and welcome to Quantum Computing Now, a podcast about quantum computing basics, news, and interviews. I'm your host, Ethan Hansen. Today I will be interviewing a professional in the field of quantum computing. This type of episode is great for other professionals and people who want to absorb technical jargon through diffusion. Well, ladies and gentlemen, here it is, the last episode of Season 1, and I have to say it is definitely a high note to end on. I had the opportunity to chat with Robert Suter, VP of IBM Q Strategy and Ecosystem, about IBM Q's goal and vision, their hype surrounding quantum computing, how IBM combats that hype, and his excellent new book, Dancing with Qubits. Stay tuned, this is Quantum Computing Now. So, I have with me on the podcast today Robert S. Suter, who has recently released a new book, Dancing with Qubits. We're going to talk all about that, as well as some of his work with IBM quantum computing. So, Robert Suter, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you, Ethan, and uh, please call me Bob. All right, will do. So, Bob, could you give us some background on how you got into quantum computing? What were you, what were you doing before you got into quantum computing? That sort of stuff. Sure. Well, I'm a mathematician by training. Um, I have a PhD in theoretical math. Um, and uh, I've been with IBM, I, I think, slightly above average uh, in terms of tenure, uh, 37 years. Um, first 15 or so of that was spent in IBM research in the math department. And then I went off and did various things on the business side, uh, such as I ran the uh, software business on top of Linux. But about eight years ago, I was asked to come back. Uh, to IBM Research and run the Mathematical Sciences Department, uh, which I did for several years. Um, and um, really, when I came back, a lot of what we called Mathematical Sciences, which was certainly more on the applied side, was what today we would call AI. A lot of it was machine learning, because back then we called it analytics. And then it was data science, and then it became AI. But uh, I noticed that... Uh, in other parts of research, uh, literally, literally down at the other end of the building, uh, there was this hubbub about quantum. And uh, in leadership meetings, I was learning that we were getting ready to put a quantum computer on the cloud. So this was around 2016, early 2016. Yeah. And so uh, I thought it would be a good idea to learn a lot more about quantum. And so that's how I first got into it. Yeah, interesting. So IBM's definitely been a player for a while. So let's actually, I was talking about, you know, your book. Let's put that off for now and talk about what you've been working on at IBM. So why exactly is IBM interested in the promise of quantum computing? Well, it's it's not new, <laughs> our interest. In, in fact, uh, just about 50 years ago, uh, February of 1970, uh, IBM fellow Charlie Bennett, in, in some of his notes, wrote out the phrase quantum information theory. So this hmm. is 1970, uh, because wow. uh, as I mentioned before, I was involved in the, in the mathematical sciences department, but IBM has always had uh, a very broad interest in research as it relates to, let's just call it computation, right? going way back. Yeah. Uh, but of course, look, there, were, there were no quantum computers in and in fact, in the 1980s, there were no quantum computers. Uh, but people were starting to think about um, if one had one, what could you do with it, right? And mm -hmm. this was the age when other people, um, Richard Feynman, for example, 
uh, talked about uh, that classical computers weren't really very good at working with nature. And by that, right. he meant representations of things like uh, atoms, electrons, molecules, photons, things like this. That is quantum mechanical systems. And so into the 1990s, we rolled and there were more things. Peter Shore did his famous factoring algorithm mid part of that decade. And it wasn't until the end of the 1990s that we saw people really being able to create artificial qubits. Now, hmm. these existed um, for an extremely short period of time. I mean, such a short right. period of time, you couldn't do anything about it. But with that, and with the turn of the century, now people were starting uh, on this quest to create qubits, quantum bits, that would have long enough coherence time, that is, time when you could do things with them before they became chaotic, um, that you could do real computation. So the early part of, of this century, so now we're talking about 20 years ago, people were using NMR, nuclear magnetic resonance, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. which has been around since the 40s. But around 2007, um, at Yale University, the first, what I would call really stable, transmon superconducting qubits were created. Mm-hmm. And this is the technology we use, of course, 13 years evolved. Uh, yeah, and we yeah. started building up our team. And so by 2010, we had added more uh, uh, experimentalists on the physics side. We started building out the theory team because there was a lot to do there before you could actually compute. And then, as I mentioned before, in 2016, we put our first quantum computer on the cloud, on the IBM cloud. Um, And rolling forward very quickly, uh, we've had over 200,000 people who have registered to use these. And they have run well over 60 billion, that's with a B, circuits wow. on, our, on our quantum computers on the cloud. Yeah. So, um, you know, you see various things in the news, you know, so-and-so is going to start doing things on the cloud, you know, with quantum computing. And that's great. That's, that's mm-hmm. great. You know, in May will be a year four with that. So we have a lot of experience. <laughs> and we've also seen other people say, oh, we're at this Sputnik era. Well, we're not at this Sputnik era. Um, we're not, uh, we're not at Apollo. We're not landing anyone on the moon yet. That's what we would call quantum advantage, right? where we could possibly do things significantly faster. But, you know, I, I, I think giving credit where it's due here, uh, if you like the, the space program analogy, we're well into Mercury, uh, maybe a little bit into Gemini as well. Very nice. Yeah. I'm definitely a space nerd as well. So I appreciate the, the analogy, um, so you talked about at your work with AI and what was called uh, data analytics back in the day. And there's a lot of talk nowadays with artificial intelligence and quantum computing. Um, there's a paper recently released about using artificial intelligence to improve quantum computing. And I'm wondering, how do you see those two working together? And is IBM working on anything with using quantum computing for AI or vice versa, AI for quantum computing. Right. And I think uh, that that's a very important distinction. Um, so yeah. on one hand, if you are doing quantum computing, look, there's a tremendous amount of data to analyze, right? We are constantly trying to produce these physical systems, these quantum computing systems that have less noise. And there are many right. different components to this, there are many places in which noise can enter into it. So that is, we have a lot of data. And this means that it makes sense 
to, to say, well, are there machine learning techniques that we can use to help us, let me just generically say, tune up these systems better. So that is mm-hmm. AI for quantum. Turning it around, you're saying, well, look, you know, you're, you're really trying to do artificial intelligence. And for simplicity, we'll just look at m- machine learning, uh, which is a lot of what people are doing in AI. And there you're saying, well, look, down deep, you're doing math, right? <laughs> well, I mean, most things in computing down deep, you're doing math. But, yeah. but really, um, you, you are trying to do certain computations faster somehow, some way. So it's very reasonable to ask, you know, will quantum computing be able to help us out? Well, yes, <laughs> is, is the general <laughs> thought. Um, but right now, you know, it's really important to remember that quantum computers are not big data machines. Right. So if, if you're reading an article and it goes something like this, well, you know, humans are producing petabytes of data every day. Thank goodness we have quantum computers to get through uh, all this <laughs> data. You know, stop reading immediately. Stop because yep. they do not know what they're talking about. There is no way within a quantum computing circuit to read data from disk, for example. Right. Now, you can use classical computers and classical computing techniques to set up the problem with the data and then run something, but there's no I.O. today uh, for a quantum computer. But in the future, when these machines get bigger and we can tackle some of the, the these problems, that's basically the approach, you know, using quantum computer to do the math faster. But, you know, this is still, I don't know, to, you know, to me, it's a good thing to do. But the really interesting side is to say, well, there, there are many different machine learning techniques. And there's a reason why there's not just one, right? Different yeah. techniques do better jobs with different types of data to pull out different insights. Is there something special about quantum computing as the actual computation model that might let you see these patterns uh, better as completely different ways or see patterns that are just not really uh, easily extractable using classical techniques? And this is where you start getting into ideas like entanglement, qubits of entanglement, right, which is a very different idea. There is no parallel in classical computation. And right. so to me, that side is is where in the long run, I think we're likely to see the breakthroughs with quantum computing and, and AI. Interesting. So then do you think that it's going to be more of new algorithms, you know, completely new quant- or, sorry, machine learning algorithms that incorporate quantum machine learning as a base or improving old algorithms and then sort of shoehorning quantum computing into them? It, it'll be both. It will be both. Uh, okay. I, I think that makes sense. And, and also, to some degree, I've simplified a little bit just into two categories. There, there are things kind of in the range of, uh, you know, between those. Um, yeah, of course. You know, we might, for example, instead of just thinking of one calculation in the middle of what is now an AI process, we might replace a subcomponent of what is now completely classical with a a, a, a um, quantum subcomponent that does the same thing right but in a different way yeah of course that makes that makes a lot of sense so going back to what you said earlier about if a article says 
that it's a good thing we have quantum computers to get through all this data, stop reading. There's a lot of talk in the quantum computing world about hype and is there enough hype? Is there too much hype? Are we in sort of a quantum computing hype bubble? What's, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, you know, I, I post things on Twitter and LinkedIn every once in a while about the use of this. Um, I think when people use the word hype, they mean it in a pretty negative sense, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So, so I, I, I wouldn't say, uh, do we have enough hype? Because that means, do we have enough of what's not a very good thing? Yeah. Um, I think that there are some people who are so into the technology that almost any attempt at awareness and education of the more general public is seen as hype, right? Mm. And I certainly don't agree with that. I, I think we're very much, and we need to be very much in this uh, what we call quantum ready phase of laying out honestly where we are today. Now, of course, people yeah. always ask, well, for what reason? Why are you doing this? And then that's the part where uh, the hype, right? The uh, <laughs> overextended expectations might get into this for various reasons. So when people you know, say such and such will be done in two years, or this will completely revolutionize this, that, or whatever. Well, you you say, okay, let's take this down two or three level of details. Let's get past the cliches and, yeah. and show what, what's really happening. Now, now, I'll tell you how we try to combat that. Yeah. And our method is to endlessly give people the specifications of what our machines are doing. So as an example, we published uh, a blog entry yesterday, so that would have been Thursday, January the 30th, on measurement fidelities in our quantum computers. And what that really means is that when you're doing quantum processes and you have these qubits, at the very end, the qubits have to collapse down to zero or one, right? They just, they must. (laughs) So um, now once they're zero or one, you have to get that answer back out of the system, right? And it's yeah. a that signal that is representing either zero or one is a very, very, very low energy. So if you're not careful when you're trying to amplify the signal, you can insert so much noise that you, you can't see literally the signal from the noise, right? Interesting. So we published this extensive blog yesterday which explained this situation, showed where this can happen. And then for six different machines that we have on the IBM cloud, we have 15 quantum computers of various sizes on the IBM cloud. But for Mm -hmm. six of them, we showed exactly how they are doing in this measurement fidelity. If you go into the IBM uh, quantum experience and look at the characteristics of these machines, you can see all of the measurements, the T1s, twos for all the different qubits. So we don't hide the quality and the operational performance of our machines, you know, behind walls, right? Um, We lay it out there. And so people want to see where the state of the art is today. Look at the numbers, not look at a lot of hand waving and say, oh, you know, if you send us something, we'll run it and we'll get it back to you, whatever. 
Mm-hmm. That was my emphasis about the over 60 billion circuits. Ultimately, if we tell you what the systems are doing, what they're capable of today, you're going to decide what's high and what's not. Yeah, that's a very in- a, a good take, I think. Um, do you think that all of those numbers, looking at readout fidelities, might be a bit more than what, say, an average person who's wondering, you know, who just wants to look up, is quantum computing going to break Bitcoin? Do you think that might be a bit much and that there's a place for sort of popularization of the quantum computing and the physics behind it? Um, I, I do. And, and your point is very well taken. Not everybody is super technical and wants to understand the physics and the engineering. But I think that there is a chain of trusted people, right? Mm. So there are people who can look at such things and say, all right, all right, this is what this really means. And there are people above that and say, that's what it really means. And then ultimately, there are people who can translate to say, look, we, in fact, will not be breaking RSA-based encryption for at least X number of years, because by our best estimates, you're going to need 30 million qubits, and today we have 53. Yeah. So so I think people can, uh, you know, without getting too technical, say, 53, 30 million. Yep. They can at least get a sense of, well, this will take a little time. Now, <laughs> how much time is, is very much up to debate, but it's not next week. Right. 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 And intel- intelligent people can argue what it is, but that at least I, I think is a good way of representing it. Um, if, if I may, um, though, you, you, you remind me of, of something else and, and I know you mentioned we talk about the book later, but someone asked me when I was doing the book, yeah, was I going to do a book that was very high level yet really incorrect <laughs> to get across <laughs> these analogies? Or was I going to do a very correct, highly technical and completely impenetrable book? Right. You know, right. The, the two extremes, um, high level, fun and wrong, <laughs> very low level and tedious but correct. Um, and I said, no, look, I'm really trying to do something in the middle. You know, I'm going to insist that what I say is correct. I'm going to build up the mathematics at a comfortable pace, but you will have a good foundation to take it further from there. And so that was the gap I was kind of aiming for. Um, with it. Yeah, definitely. And thank you. You've given me an excellent segue into talking about okay. the book, uh, Dancing with Qubits. So it's, Really, like you said, it's not a short fluff piece, is it? No. No. In, in fact, um, just, uh, you know, I signed the contract to write the book last March. Um, I, ha- I had been writing it for, for five months before I, I signed the contract mm. uh, because I very much wanted to uh, make sure I had something there before I, I legally committed myself. Right. Um, but I signed the contract in March and said on September 1st, I would have a 300-page book. And um, in fact, instead, on October 10th, I had a 500-page book. <laughs> and, um, and people have asked me about the length. And, you know, my, my, my approach was certainly, yeah, I was, I was keeping track of how long it was. But it's not a question of the length. It's a question of the pacing. Mm. Right. I wanted people to feel 
as if I were standing right next to them. And I was taking them through this step by step and mm -hmm. pausing, making sure that they understood the concepts, giving them a few challenging things to think about along the way and saying, all right, well, you know, we're going to move on. But if you want to learn a little bit more about this, you know, go look at these things, right? And leave that to their discretion to do that. And so with that model, that's what it took. And, um, you know, people who have read the book um, have not complained about the length, but they, they do seem to, to like the pacing and the approach. So I, I, I think that validates, uh, at least I hope it validates what I was saying. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So you said that you were writing it for five months before you actually signed the contract. When you started writing it at the very initial point, did you just sort of wake up one morning and went, I should write a book on quantum computing? Or were there people sort of pushing you to go, hey, put out what you know for a while before then? Um, no, no one pushed me. I, I had co-written a book in the early 90s about, um, well, it's called Axiom Scientific <laughs> Computation System. It's a, um, it's a little bit of a footnote in the history of systems like Mathematica and Maple and MATLAB, things like that. Um, so I at least had the experience of writing very, very, um, let me say, math-inclusive books <laughs> that required a lot of heavy formatting and graphics and, and things like this. Um, and, and since then, you know... I, I've been involved in a lot of different things. Uh, I was involved with blockchain for a while, some AI, many different topics. And, look, you know, I would think, oh, I should write a book. <laughs> and <laughs> I would think about it and say, um, maybe not. <laughs> you know, um, and, and part of it was to say, you know, I, I didn't really want a book that was, for example, extremely product-oriented, that the book would be out of date in 9 or 12 months. Right. I wanted something that would have at least some reasonable shelf life, should we say. And this notion of shelf life played into my choices of topics, in fact, as I went along. So um, to answer your question you know, more specifically, in, in the summer of 2018, um, I, I wrote um, the first draft of what is now the preface of the book. Okay. And I did this to say, well, all right, you know, if you really think you're going to write a book on this, you'd better think about the full scope of it. Yeah. You better think about the approach you're going to take. And so I wrote the preface. I, mean, I would guess it's probably about six pages long, something like that. And, um, and I looked at that and, and you know, I, I felt, okay, I think there's something here. Mm -hmm. And then um, a little bit later in the year, I started writing. And once I hit a hundred pages, um, I was convinced, yes, I did have something there. And oh, by the way, I probably should keep going because I'd written 100 pages and I didn't want to throw them away. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> so you try to you try to force yourself to get committed to the process, right? Um, yeah. But I was being careful not to legally commit myself to the process. Right, right. Very a good, good way to get into it. Um, so if you wanted people to walk away having learned just one thing, obviously there's more than just one thing to learn in the book, um, but it. You had to say, just learn this one thing from the book. What would it be? Well, what it would be um, is you do not have to learn all the physics of quantum mechanics in order to start learning about quantum computing. Mm. Uh, because many times when people are describe, describing quantum computing, you know, they start talking about all this physics 
and frankly, infinite dimensional vector spaces and, and their integrals and all these things like this. Um, and it can be daunting. And it can be daunting not just to casual learners, but frankly to people who have been in the field, but other fields for 20, 30, 40 years, right? Yeah. They may not want to learn all that in order to teach it. So, so that's really the first message. Um, and then the second message is, is that you can, uh, by being systematic about it, learn enough of the mathematics to get to the point where you can understand what are the main points of quantum computing, how it works, what's the basis for the computing model. Hmm. The computing model for classical computers is well known. People know, you know, C and C++ and Python and C Sharp and all these languages, right? That, that's yeah. well done. Um, but it is possible to ease you in in a guilt-free way, in a fairly stress-free way, um, <laughs> be comfortable with enough of the math and just enough of the physics in order to, to get started in this field. Yeah, awesome. So transitioning away from the book, um, do you, and sort of back to IBM, do you have a favorite app of application of quantum computing that IBM is working towards right now? So typically we and others highlight three areas, and we've already talked about one of them, which is artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. Uh, the area where we expect to see the earliest, what I referred to before is, is quantum advantage. Uh, that is where we are able to do things significantly faster than using right. classical methods. And by significantly, I don't mean twice as fast or 10 times as fast. I mean, instead of taking 10,000 seconds to do something, we can do it in um, in 100 seconds, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that would be what, what we would call a quadratic in, improvement. Uh, yeah. So I, I think chemistry is going to be where we do that because, look, chemistry is ultimately based on quantum principles, quantum mechanics, uh, quantum computing, very much on purpose, shares that, if you will, model, intellectual model. And so it's much more of an apples to apples. And that's what Feynman was talking about, what classical computing didn't have. So we have published with um, other people like Daimler, Mitsubishi Chemical, um, papers on um, on. Uh, how quantum computing may be able to help create better lithium batteries. Hmm. Um, now, now that's very good because, you know, lithium, um, for those of you who don't look at your periodic table all the time, <laughs> I certainly don't. Um, lithium is a pretty small atom. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, it, it, it's, it's way up there near the top. Um, and what that means is that it will be much more amenable to being represented uh, using enough qubits, right, for right. ultimately for simulations and, and certain more accurate computations than we can do today. So, so that that is an early area. Um, so let me let me say battery technology, uh, material science, creating new materials. Uh, there, the idea is that materials, the molecular representation, is often far more regular and simpler than things like proteins, right? Things like DNA and RNA yeah. and, and let me say advanced antibiotics and, and, and things like that. So that seems to be an area people are going towards. Um, people really, really, really want to talk about healthcare. 
and pharmaceuticals. Um, I do think we need to be careful about that, you know, getting, uh, returning to our hype conversation before. Um, yeah. It's going to require systems with um, quite a few very good qubits. And I'll just say somewhat vaguely. Um, hmm. And so we very well may not see any pharmaceutical applications for 10 to 15 years, right? Um, mm-hmm. But people are thinking about this. Now, the other area is financial services and, and uh, several reasons for that. Well, one is, is that there are a number of uh, optimization uh, algorithms in, that people have developed for quantum computing. So, so optimization is a very broad field. Um, but if right. there are some cases where quantum can do it much faster, more accurately, um, that's a good thing. Uh, in, in financial services, there are situations like when we're doing risk assessment uh, where we might now use Monte Carlo methods. So these are examples of, uh, we say there, there's no closed form expression. What this really means is saying there's no simple formula. We just plug in and get exactly the right answer. Right? But what right. we have to do is we have to examine a lot of different scenarios and play with, you know, turn the dials, <laughs> move the switches, right, to try to find what, what's the optimal solution to these things. Mm-hmm. Well, it looks like there are um, going to be some, some good replacement algorithms, which are much more efficient. Much more efficient. Um, in financial services, um, look, let, let, let's, let's be clear. Um, there's a lot of money in financial services, <laughs> a lot of money to be made in financial services. So this is a particular industry that um, invests a lot in long-term research yeah. because the time to market, the, the ability to perform uh, computations much faster with greater accuracy translates to real money quickly. So some wins here with quantum and financial services will be paid back very quickly. Um, and those, there's going to be a lot of com- um, competition there. Now, although I have highlighted a couple of areas like chemistry, like financial services, I've also said things like Monte Carlo. Well, financial Mm -hmm. services is by no means the only place where Monte Carlo techniques are used. Oh, yeah. So if (laughs) we lead the way with uh, these improvements to Monte Carlo, again, oversimplifying, Mm -hmm. for financial services, those techniques will be translatable to other areas, right? So, yeah. so don't think of this as really being limited to two or three industries at most. Just think of it instead that there are two or three industries where it makes sense to lead the efforts, but in what we learn there will translate other, otherwise. Going back to your space nerd comment before, uh, <laughs> think of the Apollo program. What did we learn? What technology did we learn going to the moon that ultimately showed up in many different places right and it was more than velcro and tang (laughs) i mean there were so many uh there's a whole i believe there's a whole website of nasa spinoffs that go from like rubber soles on your specific soles on your shoes to cordless drills to sunglasses is there some is there one you had in mind for for quantum or for <laughs> for the space program, 
for space program? Um, no, no, I wasn't thinking one, one in particular, but I, w- I was just saying is that, you know, along the way, when you have a very focused activity, the techniques, uh, the technology you develop will be useful other places. So people yeah. should not think it's only chemistry and financial services that will benefit. In time, if we're successful there, we will see um, uh, see, adv- uh, see improvements happening elsewhere as well because of yeah, that definitely makes sense. A sort of quantum spin-offs. Okay, so as we wrap up the podcast, uh, what do you see? We've already talked about sort of the biggest promises of quantum computing. What do you see as the biggest challenge for quantum computing moving forward? So we we are in the stage right now uh, that John Presco, um, a professor at Caltech, termed as NISC, N-I-S-Q, yeah. Noisy Intermediate Scale Quantum. Um, these qubits we have today are called physical qubits, um, and uh, that is, they're they're not perfect, right? They right. only last a certain amount of time once you turn them on. There are only a certain number of operations you can do in that time. Uh, the operations uh, may perform exactly correctly, or they might be off slightly. Um, mm-hmm. It might not make that much difference if they're off slightly. But the point is, is that there are some errors introduced because of noise. Right. So a big part of what we are trying to do is to decrease the uh, amount of noise in the system, the number of errors. And the way we measure this overall is through something that we develop, but other people are starting to adopt called quantum volume. Mm-hmm. And this is a single number that you, know, you can say, well, how much progress are we making? Um, it's analogous uh, in some ways to Moore's law. Now, people uh, were used to this idea of saying, well, roughly every two years, uh, the power of a classical computer would double. And then you'd um, say, well, what does that really mean? Well, the power would double. Well, but <laughs> is it the clock speed? Is it the number right. of transistors? Um, well, it was also the amount of energy would be cut in half. The size of the chip would be in half. And so... You know, going way back to when you were saying, well, but, you know, but what are technical people? You know, don't give me these transistors. Just make <laughs> sure my Excel spreadsheet runs faster, right? Um, so quantum volume, at least, is this number that pops out of real computations um, that will give us an idea of are we making progress? And, and in fact, we just announced that we had reached a quantum volume of 32. Now, mm-hmm. again, whatever that means. Um, and we had doubled that since our announcement of 16 in just 10 months. So yeah. we think we're on a roadmap to double the quantum volume every year through the next decade. And we, in fact, did it slightly faster than we thought we could lose. So people should be keeping their eye on this I- idea of, of quantum volume. And that will tell us um, how good these machines are getting and how um Appropriate they will be for solving real problems in the industries we discussed before. Now, the other area is error correction. And Mm -hmm. uh, the way to think about this right now is um, if you think of your phone or your laptop, well, on one hand, you have the memory, the working memory, but you also have storage, right? You have disk drives or, or, or solid state drives where you store your videos, your music, and your things like this. And, you know, we tend to think of it, well, I put it there and it's permanent and it will 
always be exactly the same. Right. Well, here's a little secret that's not exactly true. Um, down deep, occasionally, a zero turns into a one and a one turns into a zero for some reason. There can yep. be a little defect in a memory chip. But we have developed technology through the years called error correction that can see that an error occurred and we can fix it so that it looks like everything is perfect. Mm -hmm. That is where we're heading toward with quantum computing. It will take a while. We don't, we're going to need a lot more of these physical qubits to get what we call error-corrected qubits or yeah. logical qubits. Books like mine, uh, for the most part, we talk about logical qubits. Um, um, that will come, in, you know, it will be phased in over the next decade or so. So um, there's going to be a lot of changes. Um, you know, the, if we if we had this podcast 10 years from now, I think it would be very different about what the, the state was and what the technology even looked like. So it's going to be very exciting. Um, let me put it this way. It's, yeah. Uh, if, if you don't like change, um, you might want to stay away from quantum computing because it's <laughs> changing and getting better pretty rapidly. All right. Well, is there anything else you want to give a shout out to or let the listeners know before we sign off? Well, um, let me just give the obligatory final plug for the book. It's called Dancing with Cubits. Um, that title, by the way, um, refers to uh, entanglement. Um, there's this idea that when you have many qubits, you can uh, connect them, you can correlate them in ways. And this is an essential element of quantum algorithms. And I call this way that the qubits come together, um, do things for a while, and then separate. I, I, for some reason, I call this the dance of the qubits, and hence the title. Um, my, my goal was to ease you into quantum computing so that you could move on to much harder books, or when research papers came out in your field, you would have a good start at understanding what they were about. So um, uh, if you get the book, I, I hope you enjoy it. All right. Well, Bob, thank you for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure to have you. Well, Ethan, great. It's been wonderful to talk to you. All right. All right. So I don't really have any episode corrections, but that's okay. I got some feedback from people about the structure of my podcasts. I asked on Twitter if people liked my current structure where I have, you know, one episode dedicated to explaining a topic and uh, one dedicated to news, and then one dedicated to an interview. The feedback I got was that people would like all three of those different things, the explaining a topic, the news, and an interview, all in one episode, which is uh, in, an interesting idea, definitely appeals to me in a couple ways. Um, the major pro that I thought of was that we get to news cycles faster. So if you listen to my Quantum Fight 2019 episode, Obviously, uh, that was released in 2020. Um, <laughs> the news cycles weren't are obviously not very fast, especially if I'm only uploading once a month and I only do news. That's only you know quarterly news about quantum computing. Obviously, cannot get to all of that. Um, a con that I thought of was the major one is that it would probably be longer episodes, or I'm spending less time covering the topics. So. It would If it's a 30 to 45 minute interview, and then 15 to 30 minutes for the news, another 15 to 30 minutes for explaining the topic, you know, we're looking at hour and a half plus long episodes potentially. So it comes down to 
what sort of episodes you want to listen to. If you are like, I want to get news cycles faster, I want to have it all in a big dose, I would probably be uploading like I am uploading now, once a month. Um, I'm hoping to, when we start up season two, be uploading more frequently than that if we keep the current structure. But if we switch over to this new structure, it will probably remain once a month because I'll have to put more work into the episodes, etc., etc. So I'm going to put out another poll now that I've listed some pros and cons, talked this through a little bit. Um, so make sure you're following me on Twitter, at one Ethan Hansen. That's where I'll put the poll out. You can weigh in. You can always, of course, comment, you know, reach out to me on Twitter about what you think, like specific reasons why you want it one way or the other. But that's all I have to say for now. Make sure you're following me on Twitter. So for listener questions, I have questions for you, my dear listeners, because you don't have any questions for me, apparently. So I'm looking for new transition music for season two. Uh, that's the major complaint I've gotten is that the sound volume for the transitions is way too high. That's not something I can control with the platform I'm using to put out these different these episodes. So I'm looking for sources of new transition music. If you would like to make me some new transition music, that would be cool. Otherwise, point me towards some transition music. Obviously, I can do some uh, DuckDuckGo searching, but if you are like, I have this website that I really love for any sort of transition music, please let me know. Uh, also, have you noticed that my audio quality has improved in the last few episodes? I got a new mic. Um, thank you, Mom, for getting me a mic for Christmas and for supporting me in my journey to become a quantum computing <laughs> researcher. So... This is just a idea I've been toying around with. I want to see if there's a market for it. Would anyone be interested in a quantum computing documentary? Let me know on Twitter if you are. I I don't know. This is way out there. If it does happen, it's not going to happen anytime soon. But something I've thought is pretty interesting for a while now. And yeah, that's all I've got. I love answering questions, so please, if there's anything in this episode or even another episode from the past, please tweet at me on Twitter, at OneEthanHanson, where you can find me. I will be happy to respond to almost any sort of question. So you can reach out to me with a specific or you know general question about quantum computing, or just feedback on what you like or dislike about the podcast. I always love hearing from listeners. Thank you very much. All right, further resources time. I, of course, have links in the show notes to what Bob talked about in the interview, including his first book, the IBM blog post about Qubit Readout, and, of course, a link to Dancing with Qubits. There is an excellent review of Dancing with Qubits from thequantumdaily.com, and if you want to know more about that book specifically, check out the link in the description. Quantum Computing Now is produced in partnership with TheQuantumDaily.com. The Quantum Daily aims to cut through the technical jargon and overhyped fluff pieces to deliver quality, comprehensible content about quantum computing. If you enjoy this podcast and would also like text resources, be sure to check out TheQuantumDaily.com, which I have linked to in the show notes. Thank you for listening, and I'll have the first episode of Season 2 out when I get to it.